0: It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based, family-owned financial planning firm, providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Now, here's Doug, Linda,
1: and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc., investment advice through Lewis Financial. Management, SFA, Inc., and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewis's, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 30 years.
2: Well, good evening, North Carolina, and thanks for joining us once
3: again on Money Matters with the Lewis Family. This is Linda Lewis.
2: And this
1: is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial
3: Planner. And this is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
1: Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, what's a will, what's a living will. And yes, it really can confuse you. But you're not alone, because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs, and people are asking, is there any solution?
2: Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles, and that's the Certified Financial Planner.
1: It's the Certified Financial Planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stock. Broker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life.
2: Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt.
1: Well, yes, Linda. And yet, for many people, the secondary of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump-sum payout option from their company's retirement plan, and they want to know, should they take it, and if so, how should they invest it?
2: Well, Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient? Or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of trusts.
1: That's the third area, Linda. The fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning people are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments. Home mortgage interest, charitable giving, tax shelters, tax-free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax-free using trusts. What a confusion.
2: Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance should they have whole life term or universal should they have long-term nursing care coverage you're right lynn
1: and of course the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning here the questions never stop what's the best way to diversify my investments is now a safe time to invest in stocks what about bonds what kind of stock mutual funds
0: to reits cds gold thinking about your financial future Do you have questions that need answers? For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
2: So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle. Well, Doug, people certainly need to have a better eye as to how they find a financial planner, right? Or what what are the guidelines? You're right, And this is the
1: type of thing we've been warning people about for years. You don't just get a financial planner because it's someone you've heard about while playing golf with your buddy on the golf course. Or it's a good friend of so-and-so that you met at a cocktail party. That's not the way that you select a financial planner. There is a significant danger in getting bad financial advice.
2: Well, what are some guidelines that you could suggest to some of our listeners regarding finding a financial planner?
1: Well... There are a number of ways you should definitely find out how the planner is compensated and where the money is going to come from to pay the planner's fees. Then the next thing is you should ask for regular reports on the performance of investments. These are the status reports. Quite frankly, Lynn, if a planner doesn't provide ongoing status reports, then I don't think you're getting planning.
2: Is it because they're, they're using a salesperson or what?
1: Well, typically consider it, Lindy. You go to a place and a number of things can happen. Let's assume they really produce a financial plan for you. That's a document. That's a snapshot of where you're at right now. But then what about what happens afterwards? There are planners that go ahead and just take a snapshot of where you're at today. And the purpose of that snapshot is to basically sell you some investments. That's something to watch out for. That's a sales tool. But the important thing is not so much what you do when you start with a planner, but it's how things progress. These ongoing reports, if you're getting ongoing
2: planning. It is important to quiz your planner and find out information about the planner and then also to have some proof of uh, how they're working for you, correct?
1: Right. So what you want to do is you want to see a sample set of ongoing performance reports. And you also want to look at the man's or the woman's background, and that's through the ADV. Now, the ADV is a crucial issue, Lynn. The ADV is the document that discloses everything about that individual.
2: Exactly. The ADV
1: is the form that you definitely should ask for when selecting a financial planner. If a person says to you they don't have one or they don't have to file one, then you need to understand that they are not offering financial planning advice as their main profession, and you should not deal with them as a financial planner because the ADV is required by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, it gives a total disclosure of the person's history and past. So that's very crucial. If a person doesn't have one, then you're not dealing with the financial planner.
2: So it tells you about their background, their education, their fees, and their experience?
1: It right. doesn't tell you if he's good or bad. It just gives you their fee schedule, their biographical, and how they do their work. One thing that you might want to look for, which to me is important, is what relevant education or credentials does the planner have in the planning field or the financial services industry? Education may be as important as experience or investment history. For example, is the individual certified? Has he gone through a two-year educational program to become a certified financial planner? I think that's very important. Another thing would be, how long has the planner been doing total financial planning? How long has the planner been working directly with clients in the comprehensive financial planning process?
2: Isn't it important also to to know what did the practitioner do before he or she became a financial planner? It appears that most financial planners come from fields related to financial services, right?
1: If they're real planners, then you definitely should find that out. What did the planner do before they became a financial planner?
2: What about asking to see a sample financial plan?
1: Now, this to me is crucial. If it's a financial planner, they're producing a plan. I do not accept the fact that we're going to get a canned plan where you fill in a little questionnaire and it's going to be sent off to uh, some service New in York. New York. And you're going to come back and get a computerized financial plan. That's not financial planning. You should see a sample financial plan and find out what it's going to look like and is it going to be produced by the planner, him or herself.
2: Okay. Okay. It's important also to find out what are the practitioners' areas of expertise, correct?
1: That's right, Lynn. I think that's also important because ideally you're looking for someone who has experience or expertise in investments, taxes, insurance, estate. You want to find that there are specific areas that meet what you're looking for.
2: The numbers to call during the week at the office are... Area code nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. That's 919-USA-7000. And if, after listening to the show, if there's some question that's been on your mind that you need an answer about, I'll be happy to do what I can to help you and just call the office.
1: If we're looking at a, at a checklist... I'd say that we've got number one, education, number two, how long, number three, what the planner did before becoming a planner, number four, ask to see a sample financial plan, number five, what are the areas of expertise, number six, verify that the planner has a close working relationship with accountants, attorneys, and other competent professionals. Financial planning practitioners are generalists and may also be specialists in certain areas, but you ought to check references of professionals that they're working with that'd be number six
0: thinking about your financial future have questions and need answers call lewis financial management for a consultation with doug or deborah lewis at 919-872-7000 that's 919- usa 7000
2: and doug isn't it helpful also to find out what type of clientele the practitioner serves
1: i think that's good number seven then what type of clientele It's not uncommon for some planners to work specifically with particular professional groups or income levels or age groups. I know in our practice, there are certain types of people that we do not work with.
2: And it's very important for people that are looking for planners to find out, will the practitioner with whom you're talking work directly with you, or will you be working with an associate handling the account, right? That's an important question, Lynn.
1: Find out, is he going to be doing the work directly for you or will he be giving your account to someone else? I've been asked that question many times through the years. How do I know that you'll be doing my planning or will you just be giving me to an assistant to someone?
2: Okay. And another question I think people should ask is, how will the practitioner keep you informed of new financial information, correct? Either through newsletters, seminars, telephone, letter, or personal meetings?
1: Well, you know, Lynn, this is the matter of what we call status reports. Right. Uh, I think herein is a very big lack of understanding of people. When they go to see a planner, they don't realize that the initial set of meetings is not as important to them as what's going to happen afterwards. So as to see the sample reports of what's going to happen after the planning has got started, how will the planner provide you with ongoing reports and how will the planner get paid for these ongoing reports?
2: And one of the, Practitioner's roles may be to suggest financial products to implement your plan. Will the planner provide generic or specific investment advice, right?
1: And who's going to do the research? Who's going to go ahead and actually do the analysis on the products that are recommended? And then I think a very crucial issue to ask is, does the practitioner have any vested interest in any of the products that he recommends?
2: And also... People need to find out how the financial planning practitioner is compensated and whether or not there is a charge for the plan or for periodic reviews as well as revisions, right?
1: That's right. This is the most important thing, Lynn. Financial planning practitioners are compensated in one of two ways, either fee only or fee commission. Now, some people say they are planners and they work on commission-only arrangements, but to me, that's a basic sales approach. If you're doing something for free... And the goal is to sell some products. That's not real financial planning. But there are planners that work on a fee-only or a reduced fee arrangement, and you need to be very clear on how the fee structure works, whether you are paying your planner on a fee-only arrangement and then you'll take his or her advice and go to another broker or someone to do the investments and the commissions will be paid to the other individual, or whether the planner will be working on a fee-commission arrangement and how much he's going to get paid. So you, you need to really be comfortable that the planner is being uh, open and honest with you about how he's being compensated and that he's being compensated properly. You don't want someone who is not being paid well for the services or you're not going to get any service. Correct.
2: Correct. And it's important, too, Doug, as people are looking for planners, uh, it's one thing to, to be checking out the practitioner that you're interested in working with, but also to sit down and get that notebook out and start jotting questions down that are on your minds or concerns that you have regarding your own situation, correct?
1: You're right, Lynn. You need to meet with your planner ahead of time Bring a list of questions, get some references, client references, call clients that they're working with, see a sample financial plan, get comfortable that this is the person you work, and then go into it 100% realizing that this is a person that has a lot of influence over your financial
0: future.
2: You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF.
0: You have questions, the Lewises have answers. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919 872 7000. That's 919 USA 7000.
1: Let's take another call, Doug. Hi, John. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
4: I just wanted to ask you about the revocable trust. Uh, I have a an aunt who is setting up a, a revocable trust, mm-hmm. and uh, I would be the trustee. Okay. And I was just wondering. We've been to an attorney, but he didn't. Uh, he wasn't too good at explaining things at, uh, about the thing.
1: Then why are you using him? <laughs> well, one of the one of the things you want to watch out for in, uh, in in having estate documents produced is you want to always understand everything. And in my opinion, if the attorney can't explain to you what he is charging you to produce, then you probably need to see another attorney. Let's get to the specifics of your aunt. How old is she? Uh, Ninety-two. She's 92 years old. And what's the size of her estate? Uh, it's about... Uh, Close to five hundred thousand. Five hundred thousand dollars. All right. And who's the beneficiary? Oh, uh, I I am. Okay. Now, if her estate, and by the way, what is what's in we the? We want to avoid probate. Okay. Let's go on a little further. Uh, is is it everything in the state of North Carolina? Yes. Is it in? Uh, what kind of assets are they? Stocks and bonds and stocks cash. Stocks and bonds. How about real estate? Uh, very little real estate. Just a home. Okay. The, uh, the, the avoidance of probate is, uh, depending on who you talk to, it may or may not be a very severe issue. It may be a bugaboo that, I, that, 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 that you need to sort of look a little further at and get a quote on how much would be the probate expenses that an attorney would charge you to go ahead and take the estate through probate. But it's true, if you create a revocable living trust what you do is you create an entity, just like a corporation, and then your aunt gives away everything to this corporation, which we call a trust. Right. And this trust, uh, we will for the si- for the moment say that it's a living trust because it's being created during her lifetime. Yes. Other kinds of trust are testamentary trust, and all trust break into those two broad categories: living trust or testamentary trust. Many times we write testamentary trust language into living trust documents, but a testamentary trust is one that begins its existence at death. On the other hand, this is a living trust, and then all trusts also are either revocable or irrevocable, and the one that your mother, that your aunt is trying to do is a revocable living trust. It doesn't have to be. Right. Th- that simply says that she's reserving the right to change her mind yes. and collapse this thing. Okay, so that's the revocable living trust in terms of what it is. Now, what happens next is, and why you do it, she then wants to go ahead and give everything she owns into the name of this trust. Yes. Every trust has four players. There is the donor. That's the one who sets it up and gives stuff to it. That's your aunt. Every trust has a trustee. That's the the person who runs the show. Usually... We make the trustee the same person as the donor, but in very senior citizens, we choose someone else. But the trustee is the one who runs the trust. And the third party is the beneficiary of the income, called the income beneficiary. And that's the one that the trustee pays income to. And the fourth party is the remainder beneficiary, and that's the one who gets it at the end when the trust is over.
2: The numbers to call during the week at the office are area code 9198727000 that's 919 USA 7000 okay
1: now what you are doing when when you create a revocable living trust is your aunt's going to give everything to this trust and so the deeds will have to be transferred and everything will be moved into the name of the trust and if you're the trustee then you're the one that she'll be giving it to but she's reserving the right to revoke it and change her mind and take it back.
4: Yes. Now, when I told you everything to me, there's an exception of about $50,000 that goes to the housekeeper and the uh, man who cuts the yard and, uh, you know, cleans, does the odd jobs. Okay. Well, that that doesn't... That's the only, uh, only request she wants to...
1: Well, understand that the revocable living trust is an entity that goes for a period of time and in this kind of time, it's going to go for the life of your aunt, just like a corporation. Yes. But in this trust document that describes what happens, there are two parts to it, basically. One part describes what happens while the trust is in existence during her lifetime. Yes. The other part is just like a will. Right. It says who gets what when the trust is over. Okay, And in that part of the trust document... It's identical to the will. As a matter of fact, it takes the place of the will in many cases. So the the housekeeper gets X amount, and you get X amount, and Jim gets X amount, and so forth. So those are the the will provisions in the revocable living trust. The most important thing, however, the most important reason that you would do a revocable living trust for a person uh, 92 is for incapacitation. If indeed she becomes incapacitated... Now there is someone that can go ahead and take care of her affairs for her. And that's why, that's the main reason a person sets up a revocable living trust is to provide for incapacitation. Some people try and do this with the power of attorney, but powers of attorney don't often work. But the revocable living trust removes that problem. Right. Now you're the trustee, and we set up a sequence of trustees. I. Uh, very often, people look for the revocable living trust as being um, a way to avoid estate taxes, but it will not avoid the estate taxes. Yes. The principal reason is the avoidance of uh, in, or the, the solving the problem of incapacitation. The second reason that people would do this is the time of probate. Uh, at the moment of her death, then you don't have to go through a nine-month waiting period to go through probate the trustee simply distributes to whomever the instructions are to distribute, which in this case would be yourself. I but, see. So I'm better off going with the re, uh, revocable, right? Yes, you are. The only thing is that uh, you should probably make sure you can customize these things and put nice little delicate features into them. Uh, so you want to use an attorney who is creating a revocable living trust uh, that knows what he's doing and knows... In other words, unfortunately, there's a lot of computer softwares that you can just print these things out. I'm afraid that's what I've uh, gotten involved with. Uh. Yeah, and, and, and that's probably not the way that you want to go. If you will call my office during the week, it might do well to just to set up a meeting if you want to be happy to meet with you and go over what she's got, or just simply I could recommend a couple of attorneys in town that specialize in this area.
4: Well, I'll call your office. Uh, looks like I should have come to you to begin with, so I'll give you a ring this week. Thank
2: you, John. And our number in Raleigh is 872 7000 that's USA 7000 and and start writing down your questions and then when if you meet with you know Doug or another financial planner then that individual should be able to address your questions
1: good
4: enough and how long does it take to set this up
1: well a good Normally. A, a good attorney can usually do those in about a week to a week to two yeah
4: Okay,
2: I'll check with you this week then. Very good, thank
0: you. Thank you. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
2: Doug, what's new in the area of tax planning?
0: Well, Lynn, give and you shall receive.
1: A tax deduction, that is. Uncle Sam encourages generosity by subsidizing it. Your write-off begins with the first dollar you give if you itemize your deductions. To be deductible, your gift has to go to a nonprofit, religious, educational, or charitable group that meets IRS standards. If you are uncertain whether an organization is approved by the IRS, you may check with the IRS or obtain IRS publication number 78. Donating appreciated property, such as stocks or real estate, is often the best option. Not only do you take an income tax deduction, For the full value of your contribution, but the tax exempt recipient pays no capital gains tax when the property is sold. There is a limit to how much can be deducted in a single year. You can claim charitable contribution deductions up to 30% of your adjusted gross income without worrying about the twists and turns of the IRS limits. The rules are complicated, so if your generosity exceeds that level, you may need professional advice to structure your gifts for the best tax outcome. Your Certified Financial Planner can also help you recompensate your children for the portion of your legacy that you give to charity. One option is life insurance for the amount that you give away. Your heirs should take out the policy on your life, but you could give them the money to pay the premiums. Select the strategy with your Certified Financial Planner. Make sure your gift doesn't force you to pay the alternative minimum tax. Discuss your benefits of using a gift annuity or a pooled income fund. Or maybe you need a charitable lead trust a life estate agreement, a bargain sale, or a life insurance gift. The right strategies for you will depend on what you want to donate, how much it's worth, and whether you want to receive income for your generosity. If you've been wondering about charitable contributions, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, seek competent financial advice, and if you have any financial questions, just give me a call at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. your financial future is at stake.
2: Another interesting topic has to do with nest eggs,
3: Social Security, and Roth conversions. Say someone has a tax-deferred account, a non-Roth, okay. with a contribution value, meaning that's what they contributed, of about 200000 and a current value of 600000 what if the entire 600,000 was placed in a federal and state tax-free municipal bond for 1 year and then withdrawn? Would there be taxes on the $400,000 gain even though it is withdrawn from a tax-free investment? You would not
1: you would not uh, imagine how many people ask me the same question. Can I go ahead and put my investments in my IRA in something tax-free? <laughs> such as a municipal bond, Uh and then when I withdraw it out, not have to pay tax. Sorry, it isn't possible to escape taxation on withdrawals from an IRA by temporarily investing the money in tax-free munis. It doesn't matter what's going on inside the IRA. Whatever comes out of the IRA, Deborah, is going to be taxable. End of story.
3: Yes,
2: yes. So an IRA is like a tax-deferred vehicle, but eventually, when money flows out as income... What's going to happen? You're going to pay tax. Doug, let's take a caller now.
1: Well, Dean, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you this evening? I've got a couple
5: of questions. What kind of cost are you looking at for, for financial services such as
1: yours? Well, I never go ahead and mention advisory fees on the air because they differ according to clients. We charge at our practice. We charge by the hour. Some planners go ahead and give a flat annual fee. We do offer that to certain clients. Other planners go ahead and charge... Any number of types of either by the hour or by the quarter, by the month, by the year, by the plan, and so forth. But if you'll call the office during the week, Linda will go ahead and she can discuss that with you a little more. My job tonight is to really to sort of educate you as to what's out there and how a planner functions.
5: Okay, good. good. The other question I had is about re- retirement. I'm sort of remiss in getting any retirement plan started. But uh, I recently uh, talked to an insurance agent who suggested that I suggested a plan for me, and, and when he brought forth the plan, it essentially was a whole life policy, uh, and uh, investing a certain amount in that each month, and it building up over a period of time. Uh, and I really was trying to find out if there you know, one, is that is that a sound way to go about it? I mean, obviously, I guess I can use the additional coverage, but I feel like I have enough life insurance coverage.
1: Life insurance is an arrangement between you and an insurance company that you will pay a small amount of money... Called a premium, as you and I know, and that at the time that you die, the insurance company will pay your beneficiary a whole bunch of money. And if you go ahead and buy a $100,000 policy or a $500,000 policy and you go ahead and make the first monthly premium of maybe it's only $500 and you die the next month, then your wife won because she got a half million dollars and you only cost her $500. Okay, that's the gamble, and that's called that's called risk management. That's exactly what it is legally. It's risk management. Interestingly enough, it is against the law in North Carolina, according to the Insurance Commissioner's regulations, to use the term investment with regard to insurance.
5: One of the things he was saying was that if one, it was would accumulate the. Money would accumulate tax
1: free. When you think about what's accumulating in your insurance policy, what you're doing is you're paying more money than the real cost of that insurance, and it's going into an accumulation account that is cash value. But before it gets into that cash value account, first come the commissions that go out, then come the uh, administrative cost of running the insurance company, and so forth. So that cash value yes, you are able to borrow out your own cash value, and yes, it does accumulate tax-free. But my goodness, you if, if your goal is to accumulate money, do it over in a mutual fund or an investment. Because the day you start to take money out of that insurance policy, out of that cash value account, you're basically taking money from your future widow. You see what I mean? You're borrowing from the death benefit. And if you borrow out long enough, you'll collapse the insurance policy. So don't confuse the two. Insurance is not a retirement vehicle. It's not an investment.
5: So essentially, if I've got enough money to invest, additional sum of money each month, it would be better off, even if it's not a tax, or maybe there's other way to do it tax-free.
1: Absolutely. First, we do need to look at the risk coverage necessary, and buy an inexpensive 20-year level term policy if we need to go ahead and have a certain amount to cover, but the amount of money for retirement, you need to put that money monthly into an investment program, but I just wanted everybody out there to understand that insurance is for death protection, and investments are investments and we shouldn't confuse those two
2: and if you have further questions call the office in raleigh at 919-872-7000 that's 919-USA-7000 and we appreciate your calling
1: and you can also go to our website dougandlinda.com dougandlinda.com.
2: You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: So in total financial planning, what is the first thing after we've gathered all of the data and about the client, what's the first thing that we need to address?
3: We need to analyze their situation, find out what their current financial status is. And then after
1: we've analyzed it, then we need to go ahead indeed and look at what is the need for insurance? What is the need? That's right. Yeah, That's right. exactly right. So it's not a matter of we ignore insurance. Oh, no! No but no no, insur- no! But if it's a single person who has no wife or children, then probably no need for any insurance at all. If it's a married couple uh, and with young children, and maybe one the the one earns the live the, the the income, and the other's a stay at home spouse, then that income is it needs to be needs protected to be yeah. so okay. all of that needs to be covered immediately first of all but from there on now we don't confuse insurance as an investment vehicle no 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 no
2: and we need to understand that uh, if a person purchases insurance They're transferring risk, right?
1: That's why they're doing it. That's exactly right, Linda.
2: Um, And if they purchase the insurance, there's a commission attached to that insurance.
1: Which is fair. That's fine as long as it's needed to cover that risk. Exactly.
2: That risk. So uh, when people buy insurance, they need to ask, how much is this going to cost me? And how much are you, insurance person, getting paid for the transaction? But the more important thing is to remember that insurance is not an investment.
1: That's right. So yeah. then after we've covered that, then we do need to go ahead and go to what about accumulating for investments Where my financial future? That's exactly right, because the probability is much higher that you're not going to die than you are going to die.
3: Yeah, and I, th- I think, um, <clears throat> you know, you have to you have to be careful to not merge goals or merge parts of your financial planning into one and try and make one thing solve two problems. You really have to know insurances for risk management and covering that income that might be lost, and retirement planning is retirement planning.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. And and I I was glad that he asked the question about what does it cost, because if you ask that question to somebody you call on the phone and they say, oh, we will give you a free meeting, then just remember, there is no free lunch. There's no free lunch. If somebody says, oh, we'll be happy to meet with you for free, then as you said, Linda, there's got to be something somewhere, so that should be a warning right away. And just as he was concerned about, and which is why there he may called be us,
2: a sales pitch coming. Well, there there has know. to be. I mean, it's not no. a
1: matter. Nobody meets for free and does things for free, obviously. So you just need to go ahead and realize, as he did, he he, should, he wanted to pay for
2: advice, and I and, was glad. And it's important to remember that each person. I agree with both of you. That each person's situation is different, and the need, whatever the need is, it exists. So what you want to do is get proper advice to see, to have an analysis, to look at your situation, to sort it all out, to ask the questions that you've had that you wanted to ask, and
3: to get proper answers right and you know what's funny is that um just as an aside there was an article recently um about how in the same way that this question was merging together should my insurance policy be life insurance policy be paying for my uh so you know uh helping me fund my retirement in the world of securities licenses and life insurance policies i'm sorry life insurance um or just insurance licenses, that's what I mean. They are often merged, and people don't know who can sell what. It's been a long time coming, but I, I'm really
1: happy to see that some former securities regulators are now bringing it to the table, that there is an abuse happening. Now, There's some older stockbrokers who lost their licenses, but they found a creative way to keep selling investments to their clients by using their insurance license. And this is where the regulators are honing in. Because basically, a salesperson can pitch a variety of financial products if they are covered, wrapped, yeah, wrapped by an insurance <laughs> wrapper and everything. So this is uh, this is this is the new disclosure that happened. It, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal within the last week. There was an article. Uh, if you do something bad enough to lose your securities license, then this one person says, you probably shouldn't have an insurance license either. And the I think the, that individual was one of the regulators in one of the states and everything. A lot of states actually do have some uh, some provisions to start stopping this matter. Because if a person has done something bad and lost their stockbroker's license, their securities license, then it's my feeling they should be prohibited from now just doing the same thing under, under an, in, in, an a, insurance, uh, insurance license. Insurance
3: license, yeah. Typically, states require brokers to have securities licenses to sell financial instrument, instruments such as stocks and bonds. Insurance licenses cover products such as fixed annuities, which guarantee the buyer will earn a minimum interest rate for the term of the contract, and variable annuities. However, or variable annuities, however, are considered securities at the federal level, but may be treated, but may be treated as securities or insurance products, um, or by both but you know but there's a there's a there's a um confusion as to is it the federal or the state saying that the variable annuity or the fixed annuity is a is a security or an insurance product
0: thinking about your financial future do you have questions that need answers for a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis call Lewis Financial Management at 919 872 7000 that's 919 USA 7000
2: you're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Doug, what's new in the area of investment planning?
1: Well, Lynn, I think a couple of things are interesting. I think the big thing is to look at mutual funds and to realize, in the way of investments and investment planning, that people don't understand much about mutual funds. Lynn, I think one of the big questions people are confused about is: can a mutual fund go broke?
2: I think a lot of people wonder, or some people have wondered, what happens if my mutual fund goes broke?
1: I've heard that well, question. can it
2: go broke? Yeah. Well, a mutual
1: fund's assets can and will fluctuate in value, but the liabilities, that means what it owes plus the shareholder's equity, can never exceed its assets, so the mutual fund can't go broke, Linda. A mutual fund can't go broke.
2: Well, Doug, another question that uh, some have is, what happens if the fund sponsor goes bankrupt? Um, will I lose my money? Uh, you know, when the bankrupt company is a private company and can't obtain the types of information that routinely would be available about publicly traded companies.
1: Well, in the financial difficulties of the fund's sponsor or advisor, I have no relationship to the assets in your mutual fund, which is organized as a separate company. No creditor of an investment advisor or sponsor would have any recourse to any assets in the mutual fund to meet their obligations, so there really is no relationship. And I guess most important of all is under the Investment Company Act of 1940, mutual funds are subject to very strict requirements governing custody of their securities and other investments. Most funds use bank custodians, and the standard mutual fund bank custody agreement is far more elaborate and more specific than the typical bank custody agreement for other clients. So uh, there really is not an issue there.
2: Doug, what about fraud? Can the fund managers take a person's money?
1: Well, of course, dishonesty can occur in any business. But again, the Investment Company Act of 1940 provides a variety of very effective safeguards for investors in order to protect against fraud, the 1940 Act subjects the advisor to many legal restrictions, especially regarding transactions between itself and the fund it advises and joint transactions. And quite frankly, Linda, I have never heard of any case in any mutual fund where there has been fraud.
2: Doug, and what happens if the broker-dealer is holding uh, some mutual fund shares in street name or shareholder name and the broker-dealer firm goes bankrupt? Is a person likely to lose their money Well, no
1: one can guarantee the net asset value of a stock or a bond fund. However, your mutual fund shares are safe. That's for sure. Once again, the assets in the mutual fund belong to the mutual fund shareholder, not to the brokerage firm. So let's say that you've got your mutual fund shares held through any of the firms out there. The assets in that fund do not belong to the brokerage firm. They belong to you, the shareholder, even though they're held in street name. And even if your mutual fund shares are held in street name, if your broker-dealer is insured by SIPC, then these shares, including money market mutual fund shares, are protected just as any other individual securities.
2: Now, there's another question that comes up uh, from time to time when people do call me uh, at the office. And some people wonder about the hidden costs that are found, you know, in RAP accounts.
1: Well, the wrap account issue is a very, very confusing issue, a hot issue, and one that people want to know about with regard to the world of investments. And really, do you understand what a wrap account is, Linda, how it works?
2: Maybe you can explain it.
1: All right. A wrap account is where you go ahead and you, instead of uh, agreeing to pay commissions to a brokerage firm, the brokerage firm agrees to go ahead for a flat fee, and it's usually anywhere between 1% and 3%, and most of the time it's 2% to 3% of your money or of what's in your account, they will buy and sell for you through the year and charge no commissions. There have been a number of articles trying to expose The hidden fees in the RAP accounts, I'm really not very much in favor of RAP accounts, and I don't like them very much. I think they're quite expensive. I know individual investors have pumped more than $40 billion into RAP accounts in recent years, and they are one of the hottest investment products on Wall Street, but I really don't like them. Uh, You've got the annual fee. And then in addition to the annual fee, you've got uh, a lot of hidden costs there. And if you look at the true cost of a RAP account, investors could easily be paying the equivalent of 5% of their assets. But that's not the same as a 5% commission on a mutual fund. That's 5% every single year.
2: Every year. Every year.
1: As opposed to a mutual fund where you pay your commission, your load, one time, and that's
2: it. Well, Duggan, you're not necessarily getting advice along the way, are you?
1: No. No, a wrap account is not an advice account. It's basically you're handing over your money on a discretionary basis. Well, there are some. I shouldn't say they're not always discretionary, but the arrangement is basically on whether to pay commissions or whether to pay a one-time uh, annual, well, it's not one-time, but an annual fee.
0: Thinking about your financial future? Have questions and need answers? Call Lewis Financial Management for a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis at 919-872-7000. That's 919 919- USA 7000.
2: And certainly, if you are listening, uh, this evening and you have your money in a wrap account, maybe you should take a look at whether this is the best, uh, arrangement for you. Right, Doug? And have you done some serious financial planning? Have you jotted down the questions that, uh, have been on your mind for a time that maybe your broker hasn't been able to answer? Uh, sometimes people have questions about estate planning and tax issues and, uh, retirement issues. Right, Doug? That's right. Simply paying a wrap fee on a, you know annual basis uh, really doesn't get you anywhere, does it, Doug?
1: No, it really doesn't, Linda. The, the whole view of focusing on trying to save money that way generally, in my opinion, turns out to be more expensive rather than less expensive.
2: Well, Doug, what's new in the area of retirement planning?
1: Well, Linda, as people are laid off or people are encouraged to retire early or people reach retirement, they're generally given a package, the offer of a package. Typically, your package comes like this. You get the choice of a lifetime income stream or a lump sum. Okay, so the first option they usually give you is a lifetime income check and nothing left over after you die. It's just a check for the rest of your life and maybe for the rest of your spouse's life. Then they give you a second choice. They're going to give you a lump sum if you don't want that check. Now, the lump sum will depend upon how long you've worked there and so on.
2: How do you protect those funds from having to pay any taxes, if at all possible?
1: You can pay no taxes on the lump sum distribution, and you can roll the whole amount over into what we call an IRA rollover account. That's an IRA rollover account. It's just like the IRA that you set up, but you can do the rollover, and you pay no taxes, and now the whole lump sum goes over there, and now you can invest it over there as you please. Then you pay taxes on the money as it comes out and as you choose to take it out of your IRA.
2: Does it matter if a person does the rollover to a bank or to a mutual fund or to an insurance company? Does it matter where that money goes?
1: It matters very much. It matters very much. Now, here you have to realize that somebody is out there with a sales pitch to hand you. And where that money goes, you're subject or not subject to a sales pitch. For example, let's say you do the rollover to a bank. You do the IRA rollover to the bank, well, the bank is then going to say, by the way, now that the money is there, you got to put it somewhere in that account. How would you like to put it in our CDs? <clears throat> or how would you like our discount broker to help you? And so on. So you're basically a captive now when you choose putting it over to a bank to the particular products that bank has to offer. You can do a rollover to a mutual fund. By the same token, they're mutual funds that act as the IRA rollover trustee. And again, you're subject to that mutual fund. You're a captive and you're buying their product once you roll the money over there. What you want to do is you want to select an independent trustee to roll it over oh. to who has no products whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then the money is over there, and then you tell that trustee what investments you want from the whole world of investments out there. You need to work with a financial advisor such as myself or some financial planner to help you select investments, but the trustee should have no proprietary, no products at all to sell. So all they I do see. is report to the IRS that the money got over there and no taxes should be withheld.
2: Okay, Okay. great. About the taxes, aren't you going to pay now or pay later? Does it matter either way?
1: No, it makes a big difference as a matter of fact. Look here. Let's say you take the lump sum and you pay $50,000 in taxes. Right. All right. And let's say you took $200,000 a lump sum, you got $150,000 after you pay your taxes. That 150000 is going to give you, let's say, 15000 a year in income, 10% of 150000 15000 a year in income. All right, suppose, however, you take the rollover and roll 200 over. Your 200,000 is all over there, making, let's say, 20,000 a year. You've got the whole thing making for you all along. So it makes a big difference whether you I, whether you pay the taxes or not. No, you don't pay it. The only way it would make sense if you were to say, I'm going to pay it eventually down the road is if I took the whole lump out of the IRA and then paid it. Yes, but nobody's going to do that. I wouldn't let them do it if they were my clients.
2: Okay, that sounds great. And if this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at 919 That's 919-USA-7000. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewis's on News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: Doris, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
4: I have a house, and it has quite a large mortgage.
1: Okay. How big is the mortgage?
4: 231. Okay. The problem is it isn't selling, and I want to move away. I've considered a charitable remainder trust, but uh-huh. I have been told by. A CPA that that would mean that I would have to put two hundred and thirty one in cash and the house into such a
1: trust. Uh uh-huh. Well, no, he's not exactly correct. What you have to do is you pay off the mortgage first. You can't transfer a mortgaged property into a charitable trust, but there are ways around that. But he's right; you you have to pay off the trust the mortgage first, then transfer it in. How much do you have in liquid assets altogether, all of your other assets that are liquid? It's around 800000 And what would the house sell for under a fire sale if there was no mortgage?
4: Maybe two seventy.
1: Okay. Number one, we need to move about $450,000 of your liquid assets into mutual funds. They can be very safe, conservative mutual funds. We can put those mutual funds in street name through a brokerage account and you can immediately write a check for 230000 against them. You are basically borrowing from yourself, no application, no uh, suitability, no anything. You take that $231,000 and you pay off the mortgage. You transfer the house, which is now mortgage-free, into a charitable remainder unit trust. You let the trust go ahead and sell the property immediately for as long as, little as it, uh, whatever it will bring. If it brings 275000 that's wonderful. If it brings $275,000, then you have it start paying you back immediately. It pays you back monthly and it can pay you back because all that cash will be sitting in the trust. That $275,000 sitting in the trust can go ahead and pay you Maybe twenty-four thousand a year, or two thousand a month. That money, as it comes back to you immediately, can be used to go right back over to your margin account at your more uh, against your mutual funds. In the meantime, your mutual funds will also be producing income for you to live on. And finally, the capital gains will not be an issue because you will be given a charitable deduction of about seventy thousand dollars for making the transfer of the property into the charitable trust. I'll make an appointment so I can come and see you. All right. It can all be done, though. Thanks, Doris. Thank you. you. bye right. That
2: number to call is 872 if you're in the Raleigh area.
1: You know, I'm really, I'm sort of amazed sometimes at the amount of half knowledge that's out there. I'm really glad that Doris was able to know that there is such a strategy of selling something tax-free. That's very good by using the charitable trust. And we have done these charitable trusts now since 1990, I think was the first one we did. Right, Linda? But on the other hand, a half knowledge, a limited amount of knowledge also can hurt. Now here, she's exactly right. You can sell anything you want free of all capital gains taxes if you first gift it into a charitable trust. That's exactly right. And she's also right that you cannot go ahead and put something with a mortgage into a charitable trust. But you can slice the loaf a lot of ways to get exactly what you want. So first, what we have to do, as in her case, first we have to go ahead and we have to get the mortgage paid off. Well, normally you would say, well, doesn't that mean I have to borrow some more money by maybe taking a mortgage on my home and using that money to pay off the other? No, 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 you don't have to. Here we simply move in personal investments into a brokerage account and then we borrow from ourselves. So we have no real debt that we have outstanding there. That puts the house into the charitable trust. The charitable trust can sell the house tax free the charitable trust starts paying back income which can pay off the which can pay pledge, off and and that's then exactly we go. that's exactly right so half knowledge can uh, be very dangerous if you don't know the solution. But I'm really glad uh, that that came up. That reminds me of a number of half-knowledges that are out there.
3: <laughs> and the biggest one I think that is, is right now is, uh, or topical for right now, is Social Security. You know, the, to wait or to not wait.
1: That's right, Deborah. That's exactly right. What do most people think when they think about taking Social Security?
3: They usually think that they should wait until... Uh, if, as long as they don't need it to live off of, they think, well, I should wait and take it as late as possible. And so often I hear people
1: in my office say, well, yeah, I've, I I was told that every year that I wait after 62, it grows at 8%. And so I can get a bigger and bigger check. Right. Therefore, I should wait. Well, sometimes, sure. <laughs> sometimes that's not the best answer. Sometimes that is the worst answer because... If you take that early check, even when you're age 62 at the reduced rate, and you can get that invested, then you may end up with much more.
3: Now, if you have to take your Social Security at 70, and if you were to take it at 62, that's an extra eight years. It is. Almost a whole decade. It is. So if it's working, it'd be kind of like taking the RMD from your IRA we were speaking about and putting that into the personal portfolio.
1: That's exactly right, Deborah. Just imagine that investment portfolio growing for the next eight years and then compare the two, which we do many a time, and we see, oh, worst thing you could have done was to wait much better to take it and get it invested now if you have to spend it then there's a whole new set of parameters and decisions and there are software tools uh, of course in our office we, Lots have our, of yeah, we have our own analyses that we do to advise the client which way does it work better for the and client. And that's
3: really um, something that you speak to often which is there are a lot of um, pieces of information out there that are supposed to be one size fits all like oh you should wait to take your social security as late as possible that's counter to financial planning, which is personal, individual, based on your particular situation, your particular needs and uh, desires. So what you're saying, Debs, is there's not a one size fits all. Exactly. It just, it, it can't work that way. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. You can listen to our podcast online at WPTF.com. Join us next Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m. on WPTF. Call us to set your appointment this week. 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
0: been Listening to Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919 872 7000. That's 919 USA 7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com and listen again next Sunday at 6 p.m. for more Money Matters with the Lewis family on News Radio 680 WP. T.F.